thank you, Dan and Esther, for sharing your story. Um, and just your example of a commitment to the gospel and commitment to, to our Lord. Uh, one of the things that struck me as I listened to your story is, is sort of what we're going to be talking about in Daniel, that, that God directs history. He directs the, the broad scope of history, but he also directs our individual histories, which is why I love hearing stories like that, because it's a story of the Most High who took special interest in his creation and is directing us to his will and directing us to his plan. So as we approach Daniel, we're going to be talking a lot about that. The title of this series, I've said, is Unshakable, Standing with the Most High. And unshakable fits for California, right? We're earthquake country. And, and how many of you really feel earthquakes? Okay. And how many of you are like me that it's rare you feel an earthquake? Yeah, I, I go on Facebook and there's like 20 people saying, oh, it was a big one. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I felt nothing. I remember two earthquakes that I felt, and maybe there's been more, but two major earthquakes I felt. One was in the early 70s, Silmar. You guys, some of you remember that? And I don't actually remember feeling it. I remember I was sharing a room with my brother, and um, he starts yelling at me. And this is early in the morning, and he's like, stop shaking the closet doors. And I'm in bed waking up, and I'm like, stop shaking the closet doors. We had bunk beds, and he was on top, I was on the bottom. And he's like, stop shaking the bunk beds. And um, then he realized I couldn't be doing both at once, and we realized it was a major earthquake. And, and so that's my first recollection of an earthquake. And um, the only other one was one of the aftershocks to Whittier, Whittier Narrows, and I was in the shower, and I don't need to tell that story, except that's the worst place to have an earthquake, because what do you do, and where do you go? But, um, <laughs> but these things shake us, because they shake the very ground that we're standing on, that we, uh, we presuppose is firm, that we presuppose is solid. And really, when we think of shakable or unshakable, we're really talking foundations, right? And what foundation we have, and because and we've seen earthquakes destroy cities. We've seen it destroy areas where foundations weren't good or construction wasn't good. I'm reminded of when Jesus told the story of building a house. And he said, those that build their house on the sand, it's easy. You can build a house quickly. But when the storms come, they get washed away. And those that build on the rock, which is a harder, harder place to build, those last. And after being in Israel, we saw firsthand of that. One of our trips, and I've shared this before, and some of you are going to go with us again next year when we get that, when, when we're able to with COVID. Um, we, we saw that the only place where there's sand is in the riverbeds or the dry wadis. And it looks like, okay, that's a great place to build. But one of the years we were there, we were there th during a flash flood. Time of the year where they never get rain, it start, just starts pouring. And within 20 minutes, we are watching cars swept away down some of these places. We are watching waterfalls where there were no waterfalls, just amazing power of water. And I think back to that story of Jesus, that if you build your foundation on the sand, your house will crumble. If you build your sound foundation on the rock, it is unshakable, unshakable and will stand. And Daniel is going to be a, a book that talks about that foundation and talks about how do we stand with the Most High. And the key there is the, the title of God, the Most High. And so to start today, I, I just want to ask, what shakes us? And we talk about earthquakes, but what shakes us personally? And what challenges us personally? And I know we've talked about what can shake our faith, but I'm thinking here a, a slightly different direction. What shakes us personally 
just that throws us into a spiral, maybe in our emotions, maybe in our attitudes, where we shut down. And, and for some, that, there's all, all kinds of events that can do that. When we think of the loss of a loved one, that can rattle us. That can shake us. That can be hard to overcome. I think of the loss of an unborn child and how difficult that can be. I think of, of losses of, of jobs and losses of income. Pretty much anything prolonged can shake us, right? Prolonged sickness, prolonged loss of, of income, prolonged trial, which is why I appreciate Paul so much when he talks about his thorn in the flesh and that that weakness can become God's strength because that's something that can shake us. You know, as I, as I have counseled people and looked at our own lives, I think the loss of dreams can shake us sometimes. The loss of hopes. This isn't what my life was supposed to be. This isn't how I planned it out. I had my dreams, and it was going to be a wife and a cat, maybe a dog, 2.5 kids, and we were going to live in a mansion. We have all these dreams, and I praise God I have some of those things. But really, dreams are our own ideals of what life should be. And that's trusting our own foundation. That's trusting ourselves. That's trusting our own desires. And the foundation matters. What shakes you? Maybe it's something you're going through right now. Maybe it's, it's something you've gone through in the past. You know, we could talk globally more, and we can talk about the pandemic, and we can talk about the election, and, and fear is being marketed on both sides of the election, uh, assuming of what will happen if, if so-and-so becomes president. So I'm starting a writing campaign for myself. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> but what gives hope? What gives us that foundation? One of the studies I recently heard was dealing with COVID, and it was talking about evangelical Christians seem to be the least fearful when it comes to this virus. Uh, Just in general, but why do you think that is? Okay, because you rely on God. Okay, good. We know who wins in the end. end. Amen? Our hope is elsewhere. And, And Even atheists, uh, an atheist writer that I was uh, reading was looking at these stats and goes, it makes sense. If you believe in a supreme God and if you believe he's in control, wouldn't you have more hope? Now, he didn't get to the conclusion of there is a God and he should believe in him. but, But that is the foundation of what we're going to see in Daniel. God is the most high. God is unshakable. And so can we be then if we trust him if we stand firm on him. We're going to see stories of God's people working with government to resolve situations that they don't want to be in. We're going to see people that were torn away from their homes and torn away from their land with no longer any hope of a future and how they responded. We're going to see people defy government to worship God and not defy God. We're going to see people with good reputations with government. Man, a lot of this is relevant for today, right? We're going to see stories of God's deliverance. We're going to see situations where people elevate themselves in their own eyes and think of how great they are and then watch God humble them and say, not not so much. You want a contest with the Most High? Guess who wins the Most High? And I I, I use the, the the title, the Most High for God, through this series because that is the title that is most often used in the book of Daniel for Yahweh, for God. He is the most high, and that is intentional because Daniel is making the point that the most high is the most high. 
And we can take that to the bank. We can count on that. He is unshakable. And if we stand with him, we will be too. We will see assurance that God is directing history. And his end, his purpose will happen. And nothing, nothing can change that. God is most high. He is sovereign. For me, even just, just the fact that we're going through Daniel is a little bit of an evidence of that. And, and uh, we, we, I picked Daniel almost a year ago to go through. Before COVID, before anything else that happened in 2020, which has just been a fantastic year, before any of that, we picked Daniel to go through. And now we start Daniel, and COVID's still happening, elections are coming, and boy, do we need to be reminded that God is sovereign. And boy, do we need to be reminded that he is the most high. And for me, that is an evidence of his sovereignty, that he's having us go through Daniel before any of us knew the seriousness of the need to go through Daniel. And so this is a story, it's a book of how to live and thrive in a place opposed to God. How not to worry, but rather stand firm and unshakable. And may that be the church in America. May that be the church in the world as we stand for the Most High God. Now, as is our tradition, the first week of a series, we go through some of the vitals of the book. And this is important to me because part of this is teaching us how to study God's Word, right? We could take an individual verse here and there and rip it out of context and make it mean whatever we want to mean. And we're like, yeah! Or we can look at the context and say, hey, why was this book written? To whom was it written? And, and what purposes did it have? What did it mean when it was written? And that's when we start to see the depth of God's word and the beauty of God's word. And so we always take a week at the beginning of a book to look at the historical background. And, and as, as Sarah and I on worship team were talking this morning, she goes, I love this week. I, she said, I know some don't, and you always say that, but I love this week. Because this is a chance to see the picture that these are real events, real stories that happened in real places. And we need to understand that. So the vitals of Daniel, we'll move these through these pretty quickly. The first is the author. Let's go with Daniel. Now that's why it's named Daniel. Now there's a lot of debate about when Daniel was written and who wrote it. And so I'm not going to get into all of the reasons for the choices I've made. If you want to talk to me later, I, we can do that. I, ha I also have a 20-page paper I wrote in seminary on it that we can, we can talk through. But um, Daniel wrote it. And, and I think we see that in, in the level of detail as well as in the second half of the book, he speaks in the first person. It claims that Daniel wrote it. So if it's true, we've got to go with Daniel as the author. If it's not, it shouldn't be in Scripture. And so Daniel wrote it. Daniel's name means God judges or God is my judge which I think is just very fitting with what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar, what happens to Belshazzar, and, and just when we see the, the sovereignty of the Most High. God is my judge. God judges. Now, historical background, there's a lot of great things to, to talk about in historical background. I'll try to narrow it down to what is pertinent to Daniel. But open up to Daniel chapter 1, 1 and 2. Because we have two verses that quickly, especially if you know their history, quickly set Daniel in the place of history. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
Now, these are the verses sometimes we glaze over so we can get to the, the Sunday school stories we're used to in Daniel because we don't necessarily know who Jehoiakim was and who, what Shinar is. I'll give you a clue. Shinar was a, an ancient Hebrew way of referring to Babylon. So, so when you see Shinar, that's Babylon. And, and so these things don't make sense to us unless we dive into history a little bit. And so let's look at a little bit of the history. The first thing we see mentioned there is the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And so we have to think, who's Jehoiakim? That should be the question we ask. Do you guys remember Josiah? A, a king that was a godly king in Judah that brought about all kinds of reforms? Jehoiakim is his son, okay? And, and so there's a story that, and I think I put a map in your notes, I hope, because I can't really point to a screen this morning. The projectors don't show in the sun and... Um, all that, but the map helps us understand one possible way that all this happened, and, and there may be some variations, but I think this one makes the most sense. Josiah is king, and if you look at the, the line from the bottom left from Egypt, you have Pharaoh Necho coming up from Egypt, who is thinking he's the most high, and he's going to take over the world. And so he's coming up, and he's going to take over some places along the coast, go up to Carchemish, and eventually to Babylon. And Josiah leaves Jerusalem and meets him in Megiddo, which later is called Armageddon. Interesting, it's, it's a place where a lot of battles happened. It's a very strategic place. King Josiah goes up to Megiddo to try to stop Pharaoh Necho. King Josiah gets killed. His son, his, 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 a different son from Jehoiakim, um, his, Jehoiakim's brother, was put into place by the people. But Egypt, Pharaoh Necho said, I'm the one that took you over. I get to choose who king is because that king's going to serve me. And so Pharaoh Necho put Jehoiakim into place. So he wasn't even the first choice uh, of the people. But with Josiah dead, Pharaoh Necho puts Jehoiakim in charge because he'll be a puppet king for, for Egypt and pay Egypt money and all this, this good stuff. So he's a, a vassal of Egypt, basically. And um, this is the third year of his reign. Um, and so then we see that Pharaoh Necho eventually, and, and all this takes time and armies move, Pharaoh Necho eventually goes up and ends up at Carchemish and defeats or actually faces Nebuchadnezzar there. Nebuchadnezzar, this is the year he becomes king. He's not quite king yet. He's the, the heir apparent, but he is leading the army because he's a brilliant military mind. And he comes and just wipes out Pharaoh Necho and, and wipes out the Egyptian army. And now there's a new Most High on the scene. It's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, okay? So this is the, the country that is going to take over and be in charge. So Nebuchadnezzar now has some choices. And he starts chasing the Egyptian army back down the coast by the Mediterranean, as you see with the, the green arrows there. And he's chasing the army down, and he eventually gets down to Israel. There's a lot of distance here, and so we're talking uh, some time. And he eventually gets down to Israel, and he has Jehoiakim to deal with, who's now was a servant of Egypt. And so if you're going to take out Egypt, and if you're going to show dominance out of, over Egypt, you've got to show dominance over all the countries that are serving Egypt, that are under Egypt. And so at this point, Neb, King Neb takes a de detour to, to Jerusalem. And he um, encamps around Jerusalem. We don't know for how long. Probably this was a pretty short time. It's, it's not a longer siege like happened 10 years later. But, um, oops, that's wrong. Um, but he comes and he deposes Jehoiakim. Well, not really depo deposes, but he takes over 
the, the rule. And now Jehoiakim is going to be a vassal of Babylon and going to, to um, have to give tribute to Babylon. At the same time, King Neb here, he, he's going to go back to Babylon right away and become king. He's trying to make a name for himself. Jehoiakim's left in subjection, subjection to Babylon, and he takes the best of society. The young men who were the rulers in Israel, he takes them back to captivity in Babylon. Daniel was part of this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of this. And so he takes the best of the best, and this was a way of taking the talent out of a country, take them to your own, so that way it just ensures that this country stays a servant, almost like hostages. And, and it, it was just the way that, that King Neb did this to take over. He also took things out of the temple and took vessels out of the temple and took them back to, to Babylon, as we see in this text. A side text that gives us a little bit of the history as well, Second Chronicles 36, 5 through 8. Um, talks about this from a historical standpoint. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Jehoiakim did not follow his father Josiah's example. He did what was evil. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And so we see this short-lived king, kingship that was taken over, <coughs> excuse me, that was taken over by Babylon and King Neb. And he saw the downfall, the beginning of the downfall of Judah. Very, very difficult situation, but a man that didn't follow God. And so that's the first actor on the scene in Daniel 1.1 is Jehoiakim. Then Nebuchadnezzar is the second actor, and we, we sort of already talked about him, this master, master military mind. He was also a master builder. He built up Babylon to greatness that he had never seen before and actually had never been seen on the earth to that point. He made a name for himself. He had just defeated, like I said, Egypt at Carchemish, became king of Babylon, good year. Lots of good things happened. He represented the most powerful the earth had to offer at the time, the most impressive that the earth had to offer at the time. And so most would say he is the best. He is the most high on earth. And that really is setting up what's going to happen in the book of Daniel. And so we, we see these dates that, that come that was all in 605 B.C. For those of you that want to write down dates, I don't think I put a, a list of dates in your notes. 605 B.C., King Neb comes to Israel. That's the first defeat there. And then approximately eight years later, King Neb comes back because through this, Jehoiakim and then Je Jehoiachin, they thought, hey, you know what? We haven't seen King Neb in a while. Let's rebel. Let's do our own thing. And so King Nebuchadnezzar came in 597, eight years later and took over Jerusalem again, and wiped out a whole lot more people, and took a whole lot more exiles. Ezekiel probably went in that second round of exiles. And so you'd think they would learn their lesson. Don't rebel against Babylon unless God tells you to. And then again, they decided nine years later, let's try this again. And King Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. 
and he came into Jerusalem and he burned the temple and destroyed the temple and left Jerusalem and the temple in ruins. And that was the final fall of Jerusalem. All of these are part of God, God's judgment on Judah because they had not followed him. They had not followed his ways. They ignored his request to repent. And so the 70-year exile started with King Nebuchadnezzar coming to Jerusalem. There's other things after this. A little bit later, um, King Nabonidus is also with Babylon, this, the, the guy that followed King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and his son Belshazzar, who was never officially king, but ruled in his place because Nabonidus was off elsewhere doing things. And so that's why in Daniel we have Belshazzar presented as king because he was the one ruling. 539, a little bit later, another so 60 years total later, um, fall of Babylon. We're going to see that at the end of chapter 5 in Daniel. And I'm going to save that story for then because it's a really interesting story where the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and King Cyrus, who's also called Darius, comes in and takes over. Um, 537 B.C., just a few years later, is the last year that's mentioned in Daniel. Third year of King Cyrus and exiles are going back to Jerusalem. And that's the, the time range of Daniel is through this really turbulent time in Israel's history. But a really fascinating time where people are coming to power, people are getting killed, people are coming to power, people are getting deposed, and, and all these things are happening that we just can't keep track of it all. Just for frame of reference, about 60 to 70 years later are the events of Esther, which we studied a year ago. And so um, this is all in, in a, a similar time frame. So we see in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, because Neb is the man. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And that is a key verse to understand the book of Daniel. Who gave Jerusalem? The Lord. And the word used there is Adonai, which means sovereign or ruler, someone that is, is over everyone else. And so right from the start, we see the ruler, the owner, the sovereign Lord is the one that gave Nebuchadnezzar his, one of his great victories. That he is claiming, look at me, look at what I've done. But in essence, in reality, God is directing history. Nebuchadnezzar is not circumventing God. He cannot circumvent God. Because God is most high and God is unshakable. And we can be as well when we stand with him. And so this is a theme that starts right from the start. Later, most high will be used because it really is a similar idea of above all things and ruling over all things. And so Neb here thinks, look how great I am. And we'll see that in chapter four. And then he goes on and it says that he, with, he took, um, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And we can read that quickly. But this is like what we used to see in old movies where you like slap someone with a glove for a duel or something like that. You challenge. This is a direct challenge to God Almighty that you are not most high. You are not powerful. So what would happen is if you defeated another country, you would take the articles from their temple to their God. You would place them in front of your God in a place of worship. And what is signified is 
my God's better than your God. You know, it's back to the, the whole schoolyard thing. My dad's bigger than your No, my God's better than your God. And so Nebuchadnezzar intentionally does this to say, my God, probably Marduk at this point, Bel Marduk, Marduk is better than Yahweh. Your God couldn't even stop me from coming in. In fact, he can't even protect his temple. He's going, I'm going to take his stuff and I'm going to put it in my temple saying, my God is true, your God is not. And that sets up the confrontations that we're going to see, especially in the next six chapters. But the confrontations that we see for the rest of time as this world and Satan's influence on this world continually challenges the Most High God and says, we are better, we know better, we will do what we want. And so that's the historical background for the book of Daniel. You know, why was Daniel written the purpose you have to understand that background. Things have gone badly for Israel. Their own king hadn't followed God. Their own king was committing abominations. So they didn't have good leadership. They, they had a, lots to complain about there. And then because he didn't rule well and they didn't respond well or follow God, they all suffered judgment by being carried away into a foreign land, into captivity. Their temple was destroyed. Their land was destroyed. Those are the two things that they held most dear. And they were ripped away from them. And they were taken to a foreign land where they didn't know much of anything. That's a bad year for them. And so Daniel writes this to remind them of hope, to remind them that God has not forgotten them. And oh, do we need that today. We need that today. We need to be reminded that God the Most High is still on the throne. Nothing has changed. We don't need to watch the news and freak out because God is still on the throne and is unshakable in that position. And so that really is some of the purposes of the book for Daniel, of Daniel. He's also in the second half through prophecy. He's going to reveal God's purpose for the world. He's going to reveal a purpose that cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed. In the middle of it all, we can rest assured that God wins, as, as Joe mentioned. God wins. He's also going to show us examples of faith. Examples of people that were unshakable, who stood firm with the Most High. And we're going to see those in the first six chapters. And so he defends the supremacy of the Most High. Main point. You see this in your notes. Yahweh is Most High. And every attempt by man, rulers, or kingdoms to usurp him will be defeated and brought low as God's kingdom and those who stand with him will rule forever. I know it's a long sentence but I couldn't leave any of that out <laughs> because every part of that means something. Yahweh is most high. Amen? We can trust that. Take that to the bank. Every attempt by man, rulers, or kingdoms to usurp him, to set themselves up as following their own direction, as I am, I am God, my own God, every one of those attempts will be defeated and brought low in God's timing as God's kingdom and those who stand with him will rule forever. And there's a certainty to the book of Daniel and a certainty to those points that we need to understand because as we understand and believe those certainties, that's what enables us to stand firm for God in an unshakable manner ourselves because we trust God. So Daniel's a story about God. It's not about lions. I know we have lion on the cover. The book of Daniel isn't about lions. It's actually not about idols. It's not actually about a fiery furnace. It is about God most high. 
all of those other things are side characters and side events to point us to God Most High and to reassure us of that. It's the story of God. Just like the Bible, the whole story is about the gospel and God redeeming creation back to himself. And so, so we're not going to, to go through some of these stories and say, well, you know, I think I'm Daniel in that story. Yeah. We always want to be Daniel. No one ever wants to be the lion. Poor lion. No, this is the story of Most High and should always be pointing us back to the Most High. The key verses that I've put in your notes and I've mentioned as your, your memorization verses this week, Daniel chapter 4, um, second half of 34 and 35, and this is King Nebuchadnezzar after, after four chapters, which I'm calling the Chronicles of Neb, um, as he finally comes to an understanding of who the Most High is, he says this, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And what a marvelous theological declaration from King Nebuchadnezzar. And you might say, well, how can he get from just taking over Carchemish and taking away the king of, um, or usurping, deposing the king of Judah? How can he get to this? That's what the first four chapters are going to let us know. Because we see God's hand in history bringing him to this point. And so that's our main point. A couple things about date. I know it's hot, and, and we can talk more about this later if you want. There, there's really a, a couple of decisions when it comes to date. There are a number of scholars that are more mainstream or, or um, scholars that would say Daniel wasn't written until the second century B.C., 400 years later. And then a number of scholars that, that I think are, are um, a little more evangelical, taking Scripture as the inspired Word of God, they would say, no, this was written at the end of the Babylonian captivity by Daniel. And that's really the, the two camps, and there's, no, there's not much in between. And I'll just say right up front, we're going to go with, with Daniel wrote this at the end of the Babylonian captivity, somewhere probably 535, 536 B.C. when he was in his 80s. And um, cool to write a book when you're in your 80s. And he's possibly compiling some of his notes. Um, some of the reasons... People um, think that it's a, a much later date. Two main reasons and then some more that we, again, if you're interested in that, we can talk later. One of the reasons is they say it's not historically accurate. For instance, they say Belshazzar didn't exist. He wasn't king. So where, where is chapter 5 then? Obviously, that's not true. Except recently they found <laughs> lists in Babylon that had Belshazzar. We find out he's the son of the king and he was ruling in his place. And so that one's out the window. Um, there, there's some other things like King Neb coming to Jerusalem, um, and we, d we don't see a huge um, siege at this point in the first part, but the wording doesn't even have to be this huge siege. It's, siege. it's the threat of an army coming, and we know that that happened later. Um, Darius and Cyrus, some say, well, Darius isn't really mentioned elsewhere, so he's not mentioned as ruling, but then we found out that Darius and Cyrus were names used probably of the same man. And they use titles of different names. And so there's resolutions to all that. God's word is true. And the history that it presents is true. And I love how finding after finding proves that when people say, oh, no, it can't be true. We, we don't know that. We don't know everything. We don't. That's, that's just a good lesson for the morning for all of us. 
we don't know everything. And so we're finding out more. The, the other reason why some say that it had to have an earlier date is because how can you write prophecy before it happened? That's coming from a mindset that says God can't write a prophecy before it happened, which we reject out of hand. I don't even think I need to spend a lot of time on that. And, and so we would say God is perfectly capable of foretelling events when he chooses to. And so um, there's a whole lot of reasons why I think it was written in the Babylonian captivity. The language fits better. The Aramaic fits better. And so um, that's just a brief, brief history of dating for those that are really into that kind of thing. Two other things that we want to talk about. Structure. And I put a, a proposed structure. There are two different ways to break down Daniel. And this, again, gets a little technical, but it's really fun stuff. Daniel, you'll see right away, is broken up into two halves. The first six chapters are story or narrative. They would follow a hero story motif that was of the writing at the time. And so these are true stories of what actually happens that are going to illustrate the point of the book via example. And then chapters 7 through 12 are, are, prophetic, are prophetic in nature. They're apocalyptic in nature. And so that is a type of genre that we would use for prophecy of the end times. Uses a little bit of symbolism. So you'll see dreams and visions. But the whole book is about God most high and the supremacy of God with examples of it in the first half and then prophecies of that in the second half. And it's almost like Daniel is saying, these prove God is most high. And so we can trust what he says about the future. And, and so Daniel has an amazing unity to it where it, it has one thought that is, that is being presented. Now, the other thing that, that you will not be able to tell in your English Bible is Daniel is one of the few books, one of the, one of the only books in the Old Testament that was written in two different languages. So most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. For Daniel, half of it is written in Aramaic which is really interesting because Aramaic was the trade language, the general language of the time in Babylon, which is where Daniel was and where Daniel became, spent most of his life and became a leader and a dignitary there. And so it makes sense that he would write, especially the middle portion with all these stories in Aramaic. And, and I put in your notes a sample outline that I got from one of the commentaries and then edited a little bit. Daniel 1 is written in Hebrew, and it's almost like a, a story, an introduction setting up what's going to happen. And then chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And there's a focus on God's kingdom that is symmetrical. It, it's chiastic, we would call it, where if you think of bread and meat in a sandwich, and I've talked about this before, the bread then points us to the meat. But the meat, that's, that's the meat of the sandwich. Without the meat, you just have bread. The meat is what counts. And so a chiastic um, format has two pieces of bread that sort of are, are envelope the main point. And then it goes in and in, and you go to the center for the main point. And so we see Daniel chapter 2 and 7 have similar stories. Four kingdoms. God's kingdom lasts. Chapter 3 and 6 have similar stories of rescue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel in the lion's den. And then chapters 4 and 5, which I think are the center point of the book, have King Nebuchadnezzar and then King Belshazzar thinking they are all that, thinking they are great, and God humbling them. One gets it and lives. The other doesn't get it and dies. But both are confronted with the Most High. And then you see down at the bottom, the final section is back in Hebrew, which focuses on, on Judean oppression, but these visions 
that God will win in the end. So that's a little bit of the structure, a little bit more technical in nature, but just a lot of fun for those of you that like um, language and how things are written. And as we go through it, we'll share a little bit more of that. But where I want to end today is with the themes of Daniel. And there are four themes that we'll see woven throughout the, the 12 chapters of Daniel that I hope that we just grasp and take hold of because I believe they are themes that we need today that we need to not be shakable today, that we need in the middle of a pandemic, that we need in the middle of political unrest, that we need in personal upheaval. The first theme is God is most high and his kingdom will last forever. And that is going to be the main theme. We've already talked about that with the main point. God is most high, his kingdom will last forever. God initiated history. He will bring it to his goal. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereignly leading to the life of Christ and to the cross and the salvation that was bought by his death on the cross and the resurrection. And he is sovereign over our future as well. There is no king. There is no ruler. There is no president. There is no governor that is above God Almighty. And we don't have to worry about that. We can trust that God is acting and the main actor in history. And so our response to that should be to worship the king of kings. And I think you have blanks in your notes here. God is most high. His kingdom will last forever. Our response should be to worship the king of kings. It was fun this morning just to hear that every worship song pointed us back to the greatness of God, to the reign of God. We need to hear that and be reminded of that regularly. Number two, and these these really go in order. Number two, God will be faithful to and take care of his servants. God will be faithful to and take care of his servants. We see his love and care for his servants throughout the book. Uh, Miller wrote, Yahweh is shown delivering his people, answering their prayers, and blessing them all throughout the book of Daniel. And so we're going to see that with the eating confrontation in chapter 1, the dream death sentence in chapter 2, the fiery furnace confrontation in chapter 3, the lion's den in chapter 6, the final visions pointing to the end of time. All of them say God is faithful He loves you and will take care of you because we serve him. Even though evil may have its day for a time, that isn't the end. It's not the end of the story. And so our response to this is to hope in the sovereign Lord. Hope in the sovereign Lord. The first response is worship the king of kings. Second response is hope in the sovereign Lord. He will be faithful to you. He will take care of you as his servants in his timing and in his way. The third theme is that of courageous faith in the Most High, even in pagan situations. We are going to see courageous faith, people standing with the Most High in ways that are amazing, that we should marvel at, that we should be inspired by, even in the most pagan situations. That's the examples in the story. That's the purpose of the visions is to help us have that courageous faith. So persevere, stand with God in an unshakable way. Trust God's rule. Trust him. And so the response is to stand unshakable against evil. Stand unshakable against evil. The last theme that we're going to see just ooze out of Daniel, and this is one of my favorite ones. I think some of that's my love for revenge. And um, sorry, we're sweating a lot. Um, Humility before the Most High. 
I mentioned in those first two verses, King Neb throws the gauntlet down at, at God Most High, right? Takes his, takes his most precious articles, puts them in the temple of Marduk, says, ha, my God's better than you. That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story, and we see God prove, oh, no, 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 that's not true. And he brings Nebuchadnezzar to the place of humility. He does this to both kingdoms. He does this to individuals. Everything except God's kingdom is temporary. Everything. And so God humbles the proud. He lifts high the humble. And our response is to serve God in humility. Serve God in humility. I started by asking the question of what shakes you. Whether it's a loss in our lives, whether it's unmet dreams and hopes, whether it's hurts, maybe someone has has said things and hurt us in ways that are just hard to get over. And these things shake us, sometimes shake our faith, but just shake us as people. Daniel speaks to that. Who will we trust? If we're shaken, that means we think our foundation is ourselves and, and it's not firm. But if our foundation is the Most High, trusting that he is bringing all of history to his plan and according to his will, we have nothing to worry about, guys. We have nothing to worry about. And we can stand firm for God knowing that there's nothing to worry about, knowing that he's got this. Whatever happens, whether for a time it seems like evil is winning, whatever happens, we know that we are serving the Most High and that is a foundation that will last. And so how will we act in, in COVID? Will we freak out or will we be people of hope? Taking it seriously, loving each other, but people of hope that this isn't the end of the world. What will we trust in politics? If our faith is in a particular individual on either side getting into office this, this year, we've lost track of who the Most High is. Now, vote. Be involved politically. But no matter who wins, it's not the end of the world because God hasn't said it's the end of the world yet. And every ruler is in the hand, like water in the hands of the Most High. When we're faced with compromise, whether it be at work or whether it be with our neighbors, will we stand with the world because it's easier or will we stand for God with what is right because he is Most High? Will we stand for him no matter the consequences? When our boss comes and wants us to, to fudge the reports or change the numbers, will we stand unshakable with the Most High? No matter the consequences? Village Daniel is a book of hope. It's a book of a future that says our future is good and it is firm. And so we need to live like people of hope to the degree that people are, think we're weird. <laughs> think what's going on the world's falling apart and you're happy? You're wearing shirts to say the church has left the building? You guys are weird. And then tell them why. And tell them where your hope is. That my hope is in Jesus Christ who came to earth and lived a perfect life and died a death I should have died on the cross in my place, paying the price for my sin. And then three days later, defeated death and sin, rose from the dead. My faith is in him because he is alive. And he is living in me, and he is with me, and he has already secured my future. So do you want to be a little weird with me? That's what we ask. That's an inroad to the gospel right now that we may never have at another time in history.
but I think God is using us to build his church. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for being able to study who you are, that you are the most high. Lord, that you are a great God, that you have done great things, that you will continue to do great things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live unshakable lives. If there are fears that are stifling us, take those away right now. If there are concerns about trusting in you, then help us to trust you. Lord, as, as Dan said, I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. We believe, help us to stand unshakably with you. Lord, bless our time in your word in the next four months as we study this wonderful book that you've given us. In your name, amen.